The following program was pre-recorded on WFAN. It's time for Hello, My Name is Craig, our weekly candid conversation about gambling addiction. It's supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Now, here's Craig Carton. Good morning. Welcome to another edition of Hello, My Name is Craig. Craig Carton with you for the next 30 minutes, a frank, open, honest conversation about gambling addiction and even more to the point, gambling addicts like myself and happy to have back for the first time in, I don't know, six or seven months now, uh, my partner in this, uh, Dan Trelara from Epic Risk Management, formerly you know, 1-800-GAMBLER. Danny, good morning, and good to have you back. Oh, good morning, Craig. It's good to be back, man. And, and just, wow, yeah, it's, it's been like six months or so. And, you know, just appreciate you throughout the entire time, and it's just really good to be back with you today. I, I think it's worthy uh, for the audience that has missed you for the last six months to talk about some of the realities of recovery. You know, we talk about it sometimes in a vacuum where, hey, if you do these things, if you take these steps, your recovery is possible. And we probably don't spend enough time on the reality that your recovery takes work and there are setbacks. And it's not just, hey, if you're committed to be recovered, you can, you know, overcome your demons and the things that led you to make bad decisions. And I think it's probably worthwhile for us to be very transparent with the audience and a lot of you to tell some of your story as to why you took a six-month sabbatical from the show uh, as you were dealing with you know, your own personal issues, but how they impact uh, a man's recovery uh, from addiction. Yeah, and thank you. You know, I, I first and foremost, I just appreciate the opportunity to be back with you and to be back with just such a great network and legion of followers. Like, there have been so many people that have reached out over these past several months just checking in, just making sure that things are good. And, you know, I, I'm in a good spot. Um, just to go backwards a little bit, you know, I mean, I started my journey of recovery February 11, 2010. <clears throat> you know, when I think about recovery, something you just said, you know, it's like, yes, we go on this recovery journey and, and things are moving along because it's better than a day when we were gambling. It's better than our worst loss. You know, recovery is just better all around is what time tells us than just practicing but it doesn't mean that things are always perfect and great. And it doesn't mean that we're not open to vulnerabilities or threats to our recovery. And, and, and I think over time, we almost can get a little bit complacent. And I'll say I was starting to get a little bit complacent. I think the thing that really happened in, in my recovery was, you know, as an athlete, I had hurt my ankle last July and wasn't able to work out, exercise, and, and really get that release that I needed for someone who spends a lot of time on the road, someone it just entrenched in this world. And it really knocked me out of my routine. And one of the biggest threats to a person in recovery is when you start getting thrown off your routine, and then those unhealthy habits can start to creep back in. And there were some unhealthy habits that were creeping back in, and it started to impact relationships. It started to impact my recovery. And it was a slow downward spiral. And, you know, unfortunately, there was there's loss along the way. Um, you know, you lose people close to you. You lose a part of yourself. And I guess it kind of all culminated into early this year, you know, back in February when I basically had to make the decision to say, you know, for my own mental health and for my own recovery, I need to step away. And, well, and, there's, and that's okay. You, you know, part of the thing, specifically in, in compulsive gambling, you know, GA is, is one avenue. It's not the only avenue towards recovery. But, you know, one aspect of GA that not everybody's comfortable with is that as you go on your journey, there's kind of the expectation. It's unwritten, to be fair that you will then use your story and your recovery to help, you know, new members of GA. 
And I think what happens, and I imagine it's the same for all addictions, but I can only speak to, you know, my experience and you to your experience specifically with gambling is that, and I find myself in a situation as well where once people view you as a guy who is, or a gal who has figured it out, there's an expectation that you'll share your experience and your story to help other people. And then people like yourself who now spend and dedicate your life to recovery and to you know, making people specifically for you, student athletes, coast to coast for Epic on college campuses, aware of the potential pratfalls of it. You spend a lot of time dealing with other people's issues and it can be very easy to lose sight of your own journey, your own battles, your own demons, and the reality that every once in a while you have to say no to other people to make sure that you remain healthy. And my gut is that as you've started to travel an inordinate amount of time in your professional capacity and your phone is on 24-7 to help anybody that I know I ever send to you, and I'm sure the amount of people you meet through Epic – that you sometimes kind of lose sight of your own recovery. Yeah, and that's and you're spot on, man, because it's it, it's kind of setting those boundaries, which I've never been good at, quite honestly. And and having those phone calls, I mean, just up until even three weeks ago, I got a phone call at three thirty in the morning from someone who's just in a bad way. I'm out in Colorado, and I get a phone call, wakes me up in the middle of the night, and they were apologetic, and you know. It was, I'll be honest with you, it was really hard to really help them in that moment because you're half asleep, you know, you're getting woken up out of a cold sleep. And I don't know that was super effective, honestly. But in the same token, you're right. We put our own recovery on the back burner. And, you know, I did a a YouTube video with Mark Leda, Soft White Underbelly, which is on on YouTube. And this is back in last September. And the title of the the, um, YouTube podcast, they were just kind of taking a look at the human aspect of different people who struggle with drug addiction, human trafficking, and gambling is one area. And the title was Recovered Compulsive Gambler. And, and, and that's not the title I chose. I get asked about that a lot, and I want to be very clear. It's not a past tense thing, as you know, Craig. Like, it's a daily conscious effort that, like, you and I and so many thousands of others have to make a conscious effort and put the work in to stay in that constant state of or that journey of recovery and there's slip-ups, there's near misses, there's all kinds of things that can get in our way. And so it's important that people know that, you know, when your life is getting demanding, sit back, talk to a trusted friend, talk to someone who cares about your well-being and your interests, and get honest feedback from someone else. Because doing the work that I do, sharing my story, and having lived in New Jersey and, and been downtown on September 11th, there was a, those were some things that were impacting me more than I realized along with kids going off to college, you know, in a month. Like, there's certain elements that I really just didn't pay attention to that were kind of bubbling underneath the surface, that it all kind of came to a head. It really did. And uh, I, I want to get, I want to, I want to refresh people on your story in a minute, but as you're talking, it just dawns on me, you know, that if you've ever been on an airplane before and they give you those instructions before you take off, which, to be fair, none of us pay attention to anymore, right. but one of the big instructions is, if there's a loss of like cabin pressure, the oxygen, whatever it is, and the and the the oxygen mass fall from above you, they always say put yours on first, then help other people. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and recovery is the same way. You can't really be effective in helping other people if you're in the middle of it going through it, or maybe not as effective, I should right. say. And you can, you know, listen, we're addicts. 
So while you're spending all this time helping other people, you know, your recovery is paramount to your well-being and, of course, your kids and your family. But for those people that don't know you well enough, let's just go back and I'll, I'll treat you like you know, a lot of the guests that we have on. When were you first exposed to gambling? And so people that don't know you will have an understanding of why you're now so good at what you do traveling the country helping other people. Yeah, thank you. Great idea. I mean, I was first exposed to it when I was – I grew up around it. You know, I grew up around gambling in my house. Uh, with my father, we went to the racetrack. Growing up in New Jersey my entire life, being 47 now, the Meadowlands racetrack, Meadowlands, Mammoth Park, and Freehold. Horses were my first love. And, Craig, the first book I ever read was How to Handicap Thoroughbreds by Andrew Byer, who came up with the Byer Speed Figures. And so First book you ever book. read? First book I ever read, seventh grade, cover to cover, was the first book. I was, otherwise, it was Cliff Notes. I didn't have the attention span for books. But for that book, I was locked in. Uh, and, you know, so I knew early on gambling was something that was, was interesting. But my big win, Craig, wasn't money as a kid. It was spending time with my dad, quite honestly. Like, he worked a lot. And at the racetrack, we would just kind of bond and connect. So I always saw gambling as kind of a fun family thing early on. And then at what point in your lifetime, looking back on it with clarity, did gambling become something that was overtaking your life? Yeah, I would say, like, as I went through high school and some of the friends I was making, you know, one of my best friends' dad was a bookie in town. And, you know, for some of the younger audience, a bookie is basically someone who, who takes bets. And if you don't pay up, they will come pay you a visit potentially, and it won't be pretty. And so, you know, I was kind of, kind of helping in that world a bit, playing sports at the same time. But for me, the gambling really started taking off as a form of escape uh, after September 11th. And, you know, that's the story that, that really always resonates with me. That's when my gamble, I gambled every day after September 11th for eight and a half years straight as a way to escape what I saw that day. You know, I, I, you know, for people who listen that live in the New York City area, you'll remember, if you're young enough, you may not. But, you know, I, the night before September 11th, Craig, it was a rainy night. The Yankee game got rained out that night. I went home. I watched the Giants play the Broncos on Monday Night Football. Yep. And I believe Ed McCaffrey broke his leg in that game. And from that point forward, the next day was a beautiful, sunny day. And, you know, working downtown for an investment bank down in the city and, and, and seeing the second plane hit the towers, seeing people jumping out of windows. And I lost a number of friends that day. And, you know, I didn't know how to process that emotion. We didn't talk about mental health in 2001 like we do today. And I didn't really have any safe outlets. So gambling became my outlet. And, and, and Craig, the way it started, I opened up my laptop on September 12th and I got a promotional offer, like a little um, click-through link on the laptop for Bo, uh, for Bodog, which later became Bovada. And if I put 50 bucks in, they'll give me a $50 match. And that's how it started. I played blackjack for 45 minutes online. I don't know how much I won or lost. I just know that I felt better for that 45 minutes. And then for you, what was your kind of bar- bottom-of-the-barrel moment? What, what got you in trouble? What made you realize, hey, I got a problem and I got to fix it? Yeah, so the, the gambling progressed and it escalated. I left I left uh, New York City in '03. I joined as a financial planner with Prudential. So I'm, I'm a person with a developing gambling problem. It's growing in frequency and time and duration, and I'm now in charge of other people's money. And that's just not a good combination. And right. um, in June of 2008, I ended up stealing the first check from a customer, uh, ended up depositing it in my account. And from there, it just continued. I ended up stealing over 35 checks from 11 more clients over 20 months for over $2 million. And, you know, February 11, 2010 was the day I was terminated from my employment. It's the day that my journey of recovery, and it's a journey, 
began. You know, there's the ups and the downs and, and the stuff you got to navigate through life. And uh, my bottom of the barrel was August 19th, 2011. I was sentenced to six years state prison. And, you know, having that in common with you and just the bond that we have, you know, that's a day that besides September 11th would probably be the worst day of my life. Sure, sure. You. you know, I, I, I when you, you you tell the story and when I tell my story, you know, about being incarcerated, and obviously mine played out very publicly just based on, you know, what I was doing for a living yep. uh, at the time, um, you know, back in 2017, Yo, know, I got to own it because it's a part of my life story. But the farther away I get from it, the more I realize that that, you know, 18 month, two year period of my lifetime is not representative of who I think I am. And while I can't run from it, I can't hide it. I can't make the comments stop, you know, the references to it. Every time there's an article written about me, there's always the reference of it. Oh, by the way, back in 2017, you know, he was arrested and was found guilty and all that. And while I'd be lying if I told you it doesn't bother me, it does. It's also fuel for me uh, in, you know, proving to those people who do remain in my lifetime that the guy I was before that and the guy I am since that is who the real me is. And while I, I can never stop people from writing about it or talking about it or referencing it, uh, I can certainly do my best to live my life in a manner where when I'm dead and gone, it's not the focus of my entire life. And while I recognize it's not fair for me to expect all the good things I accomplished in life, the charitable things, you know, things of that, of that ilk, uh, shouldn't be the only thing people talk about. My hope is that when my life is done, it's a footnote as a part of my life, uh, along with many other footnotes. And I do, I am bothered. I would, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't when I still read about it because it was such a small part of my life and everything I did was on my, on me self-inflicted. I blame nobody else. And I'm, I get mad at myself still to this day that I allowed myself to make such bad decisions. And it'd be easy to say, Oh, I'm an addict. I blame it on the addiction. I don't do that. I recognize I have a gambling problem and I cannot gamble ever again. Um, but it's just it's weird that I'm still bothered by, you know, the the references to it, you know, the mentions of it, because I feel like I've done so many other good things and positive things in my life that never get mentioned. And I recognize the first thing that always gets mentioned is the worst part of my life. And I'm hoping, you know, 50 years from now, when the obituary is written, that at least the first sentence isn't, you know, got arrested uh, et cetera, et cetera. I know it's going to be part of the story. I just hope it's not the lead part of the story. Yeah. And you know, I, you and I have known each other for a bit now and we've had the privilege to be at various events together. And, and, you know, I witnessed one of those encounters and without going into too much detail, it gave me great joy to know that I get to know another side of you, the recovery side of you, the off air side of you, and being able to go up to an individual and say, Hey, listen, this is, a, this is a good individual right here. So it, it's just not fair. And we know it's not fair. You know, I had things written about me. and Mine was somewhat public, obviously not as public as yours, but in the local town in which I lived, it was in the news. It was on News 12. It was in the paper. And it actually prohibited me from ever coaching my son in baseball, to be honest, Craig. And that's something that I still sings today. And at the time when I inquired about it, the feedback I got was, we don't want people like you around our kids. Right. Right. Just, like, let that sit first. Like, and that's what we always like when I talk to people around college campuses or people who struggle with addiction, 
or or loved ones, right? Loved ones, the family members. You have to be sure that you you try your best to love the person, but you don't love their behavior. There's a distinct difference. And I've mentioned this in the past on the show. You just don't love their behavior. Like, you know, your family loves you, but they didn't love the things that you were doing. Just like mine, the same in my case, too. But to have someone say, like, we don't want your kind is so narrow-minded and just so a part of the, what we see as a problem with society around comparison instead of compassion. It's, it's, a, it's a larger issue. But, yeah, it does bother you. It still bothers me when it comes up. 100%. I'm gonna, let me stop you there. We'll take uh, our first break. And to be fair, listen, we put ourselves in that position, and Absolutely. we do it, uh, and the reality is that it doesn't matter what we want from people now. There are always going to be people that look at us differently, that talk about us differently, and take their shots and will you know, view us as you know, flawed people that made really bad decisions that hurt others, and they'll never see anything beyond that. And while I do have to accept it, I don't like accepting it because I don't think that's the entire story. Quick break. It's Hello, my name is Craig. Dan Trelaro back with us. More coming up right after this. Back to more of Hello, My Name is Craig on The Fan with your host, Craig Carton, and supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Welcome back to Hello, My Name is Craig. Craig Carton with you for a few more moments, and happy to have back in the fold Dan Trelaro, Epic Risk Management. You know, we talked a lot about ourselves that first segment. Uh, you and I both talked to college kids. Obviously, I have a, a nationwide uh, tour going on with FanDuel to try to educate young people about the potential dangers of, uh, of problem gambling and encourage people to, you know, to be smart, you know, to have wager limits and time limits and, and not to chase bad bets, et cetera. And I know you do that as well, literally coast to coast on college campuses. Now that you've done that for over a year, do you think the young people that you talk to, and I say young because the fastest growing segment of legal gamblers now are kids in their young 20s, do you think we're at a stage yet where it's cool for a buddy to tell another buddy to slow their roll and not make another wager, similar to how the liquor and beer industry went through that phase where it used to not be cool to tell somebody that he's not allowed to drive or grab his keys, and now it's an expected behavior that a friend's not going to let a friend drive drunk. Do you think we're at the tip of that iceberg yet, or do we have a long way to go before you think young people will recognize you know, compulsive behavior amongst their buddies and try to stand in the way of guys making bad decisions? Yeah, I think we're still a ways away, honestly, Craig. You know, and it- you know, we've now hit with Epic, we've probably reached well over 100, between what's booked coming up in the next couple months and what we've already done, about 150 colleges where we're primarily focusing on student-athletes right. as well as coaches, staff, and uh, administrators. And, you know, the one thing I continue to hear across campuses, whether it's with athletes or non-athletes, just college students, the sentence I get all the time is, I don't gamble, I just bet on sports. <laughs> and that's always, that's the language, Right. A college student does not see, you know, 18 to 25, let's just put it in that range, does not see sports betting as a form of gambling because it doesn't fit their mind of what gambling looks like. You know, their uncle or their father pulling a slot machine, scratching off a lottery ticket while smoking a cigar or something. Like, that's the mentality and the image that a person might have. They're different because they're using their skill, their knowledge, and they follow the sport, and they're just smart. And there's a lot of misconceptions amongst our emerging adults and the the other thing that we've seen as problematic craig is the unintended consequence of sports gambling 
has been online threats and verbal abuse to the student athletes. I mean, it has been right. Right, your kid misses a. Uh, I, I know there've been some stories that have gone public. It's probably more pervasive than that. Kid misses a field goal. Kid misses a free throw. That you know changes an over under something like that. Uh, and they're reachable via social media, and you're the kid sitting in the fraternity that just lost a hundred bucks that you can't afford to yep. lose. So you lash out, and those kids ultimately get bullied and threatened, and now have to worry about their personal safety because you know they didn't make a play in uh, you know their sport of choice. I got you. Correct, and that and that impacts mental health and performance. And I'll, I'll share with you. I was at a university recently. I won't say the name of the university. It was a rather large Division One university in the western half of the U.S where I was speaking with the basketball team, and when I had asked if any of you been um, subjected to online abuse or, or threats, every single hand on that team went up. Wow. Every single college basketball kid had a hand up. And I further learned from their mental health and performance coach, because more schools are now starting to look at mental health and performance coaches for their athletes. They're really putting a high emphasis on that. Two of the things that were bothering these two individuals on the basketball team is that over-unders and totals. I mean, they just they know what the over-under is on a game. They know what the totals are, and they feel pressure to perform because they have their friends betting on the game, and they feel pressure to be sure the game goes over or under a total depending on which way their friends are betting that night. Yeah, it's an aspect of it that a lot of us don't consider. And, you know, the access to student-athletes is far greater than it is to uh, professional athletes. Any thought, before we let you go and, uh, and wrap it up, that the leagues have to amend – their rules for players. Now, when I'm saying leagues, I'm talking about professional leagues, where I know some players seem confused by the rules, which I don't accept. Like, you know you're not allowed to gamble on your own sport. But the rules for players are different than the rules for employees of teams, and it seems a little convoluted as to what you can and what you can't do. Any conversations with leagues that they need to do a better job of either educating the players in all four of the major North American sports, uh, or do they feel like, no, no, the rules are pretty simple. Don't bet on your own sport or on a team facility or team a charter, and you're all good. What are your thoughts with the with the pro leagues? Yeah, well, we've actually been engaging the pro leagues more and more recently. I mean, I will say they're coming to the table. On, as we start to see more of the news breaking, you know, various players from various sports, hitting the news, getting suspensions, what have you, they are addressing it more. We're at the table with most of the major sports leagues, except for one, which has been very elusive, uh, which I won't go down that path now. But we, we have contracts with the MLSPA. We're working with the NFLPA. You know, we're working with some of the pro sport leagues themselves right. to address this because they recognize, yes, education is important because, quite honestly, rules alone don't do it. There's a phrase I've used before, and it's rules without relationships leads to rebellion. We have to help these athletes, whether it's college or pro, understand their relationship with the activity so that they can start understanding why it matters. If you just yell a rule at someone, like if someone tells you not to do something, Craig, you might be like, well, okay, maybe I do want to do it, right? Because that's how I am. You know, yeah. I, I need to understand why, not just the actual rule. That's well, not just the FBI, tremendous program, and now they've kind of pivoted off their program on sports betting to help people understand not just the rule, but the relationship. Yeah, not just that. I think collectively uh, we all need to do a better job because words a lot of times don't mean anything to people. And I think ultimately to make a difference, and this is just my take. I don't have to be right on it. It's just my take. I think we need to do a better job of telling gamblers stories. Um, I think that resonates. I think putting up a sign that says, 
wager responsibly doesn't mean anything. It's good that you do it. I'm glad it's out there. You should do it. But at the end of the day, when you're a compulsive gambler, you can see all the signs you want that say wager responsibly, and it's not going to stop you from doing what you're doing. I do, however, think, much like when I was in high school, and I remember when they were you know, encouraging kids, don't drink and drive, it meant nothing. And then they took us outside to the parking lot, and you saw the mangled wreck of a car involved in a DUI and learned that the two passengers didn't survive the wreck. That meant something. That resonated with me. And I feel like the people we have on this show, the more we let those people tell their stories on big platforms and hope that those stories, and I mean the nitty-gritty of those stories, the lowest moments, you know, the suicide attempts that unfortunately are more pervasive in gambling addiction than uh, alcoholics or drug addicts, the, the loss of family, the loss of jobs, the loss of people's freedoms. I think we have to tell the stories the right way. And I think by illuminating those stories and not sugarcoating what it looks like, I think that does make a difference. And my hope is that we get to a place where we have enough you know, networks and leagues and teams and social media accounts that ultimately will see the stories that we tell on shows like this and make those stories go viral. Because uh, I do think there's an aspect of scared straight that does work when it comes to addiction. And that's my kind of selfish personal goal. But much more on that in weeks to come. It's good to have you back, pal. And I'm glad yeah, you're doing so you. well. And uh, Can I look for one thing, Craig. Yeah, go ahead. I just want to add one thing because something that you said just resonated with me. You know, with, with Epic, you know, we use lived experience and people at the heart of everything we do, and that is the unique proposition that we bring to every organization we, we work with is that we have lived experience people who share their vulnerability. And the thing I wanted to mention is right after I had stepped away from this show, I was delivering a session at a campus like within a week, and there was a young lady who came up to me who was on the tennis team with tears in her eyes. And not from the East Coast, from the Midwest, who said her father was supposed to be on the plane that hit the towers. And he was stuck in traffic that day, and he never got on that plane. And she said, she's here as a result of that. Hmm. And she just, we just hugged. I've got a 19-year-old hugging me and saying, thank you for being vulnerable and for sharing your story. And that's the power and the impact. I mean, I think back to that day. I mean, that was therapeutic for her. It was therapeutic for me. And it was just, it just, it just really echoes what you just said. That is sharing and being vulnerable with people is a great way to connect. Sounds good. Uh, look forward to having you back now in the fold every week. Uh, and the show will continue every Saturday morning as it is right now. Joe Beningo is coming up next. We will see you again next week right here on The Fan. And we really appreciate you listening to Hello, My Name is Craig. And one final thought, mental health is real. If at any point you are feeling some sort of way that's not normal or natural for you and you feel like the walls are caving in, and you're not sure how to handle it, simply pick up the phone and call somebody who you know cares about you. That one phone call will do more to save your life and make things better than you could ever possibly imagine. And I hope that you will consider that if you ever get to a place where you're feeling a certain way uh, that might be dangerous to yourself. Mental health is real, and it's okay not to be okay. Dan Trelawes at Epic Risk Management. Hello, my name is Craig. Returns next Saturday. Have a great weekend, and thank you so much for listening.